all the way from Texas and we put him to work right away. It's great to see you, Miguel. It's, it's a, a blessing to have you back with us for even a, a brief time. Um, you know, there's nothing as certain in the work of the ministry, in, in the church itself, as change. People are always coming and going and change always is, is coming about. And it's always uncomfortable. And if, if you don't like change, then, then uh, you know, you, you just, it makes you feel uncomfortable. Well, we're in one of those seasons now where there's a change taking place. And I just, I want to uh, let you know about it. Uh, we've had for, I'm not sure, I think it's at least four, maybe five years that Matt and Aaron Wahlberg have been a part of, of Good News and have been here and uh, serving and certainly have been a growing part of our, our music ministry. And Matt has, has led us in, in songs for some time now. Um, late last year, they bought a house in Elgin. And uh, as you can imagine, it's a long haul to come in here several times a week for practices and then for uh, worship in, uh, Sunday mornings as well. And you know that it's part of our philosophy of ministry that wherever you attend church, you should be deeply involved. And certainly time and distance uh, become obstacles to doing that at times. So unfortunately, uh, it is for our loss, uh, Matt and Aaron, this is their last Sunday with us, and uh, we just uh, thank you, Matt, for all of your consistency and, and leadership. And, and we will truly miss you, and certainly Elgin isn't so far you can't visit once in a while, and, uh, but we, we thank you and we, we ask God's blessing upon you as you go to a new place and, and as you continue to serve God there. And so we just, we just know that God's kingdom is a broad place, and so we, we thank you for your time here. Well, it's very interesting. We had this, the lead-in with the men's retreat, the follow-up for that, and, and certainly, uh, we, and we sang this song, Stronger. He is stronger. And we need to comprehend the depths of what is in that word stronger. And, and Paul brings up the word be strong in, in the later part of what we're going to look at today. And so I want us to turn our attention back to Ephesians and to get a, a grasp of how Paul is wrapping this book up. I, I don't know if you've ever asked yourself, why is the world always in such turmoil? Why is it that, that there's conflict everywhere? Why is it that, that uh, no matter where you turn, there seems to be a battle going on? If you read the news or listen to the news, there's always some conflict at some level, whether it's on the street, in the neighborhood, or whether it's national and international. It, there's always conflict going on. And Paul is going to be talking about some things that we're going to look at today that help us to understand the nature of where we are. We are in a war zone. Now, nationally, we are, have no declared war, but we are living in a war zone because it is the nature of this life, it is the nature of this world that there is a spiritual battle going on. It is not one that you can point to and say, there it is, and yet you can because you see the lives of people around you and you see them affected and you understand that this is the evidence of the warfare. And the warfare is going on and you see marriages broken up, you see um, 
people attacked in various ways with mental dis disabilities or, or uh, physical ailment, and, and there's all these battles going on all the time at every level. And it is not something that is, oh well, it just happens. We are in a world that is in a battle. And so we're living in a war zone. And, and I, I, I toyed with what the title of this should be, and I thought maybe I should call this the war zone. But then I realized, no, Paul has already given us a phrase in, in chapter 6 uh, where he says, this present darkness. That's the explanation of what's going on around us. And that brings even more understanding when Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Because the light shines brightest in darkness. Now last week, you know, my enemy, the clock, uh, caught up with me. And, and I, I didn't get to finish where I wanted to. And I want to finish Ephesians and wrap it up. And, and you know that week by week we've been looking at different aspects of what Paul has said. And we have uh, that Paul said in chapter 1 that we're adopted. And, and he said that we should put off the old life and put on the new life in Christ. And that we should wake up and time is, it's time to wake up. And uh, that we are to be a light. And we are to use the energy of the Holy Spirit to motivate us and move us in this world. Now, there's a couple of things left here that I didn't finish up last week. So I want to go back to chapter 6, the beginning of chapter 6. I talked briefly about children obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, this Paul's attention now, he, remember he said in chapter 1 that it is God's intention that his people should be holy and blameless in his sight. And then starting in chapter 4, he began to say, this is how this works out in real life. The change in the way you are inside because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, how you think, what you say... All of those things, the places you go, the kind of activity you engage in, all of those things are affected by the presence of the Holy Spirit in you. Because he's working to make you holy and blameless in his sight. He's working in your heart. So there are all of these different uh, aspects. And, and the family aspect here, I, I couldn't think of what to put in this treasure chest from Ephesians. But I have here uh, something I got from the internet. A parent-child household rules and responsibilities contract. Now, if you'd like copies of this later on, you probably would like to take this home and, and, and implement it. Um, because I am part of this family and receive a weekly allowance, I understand the following. I will be responsible for doing all the dishes on alternating weeks. Um, this, this will include loading the dishwasher. Man, a dishwasher, that's not even fair. Why should there be a dishwasher? Anyway, um, I was a dishwasher when, when I grew up. Uh, my room, I'll keep my room tidy and my dirty laundry downstairs. I will enjoy, I will take care of my pet by feeding it and giving it fresh water daily. It reminded me with our guys, <clears throat> we had one of our dogs at the time and, and when they were younger, and we hung a sign up from Proverbs there, it says, a good man cares for his beast. And, and that was their stimulation, their motivation to take care of their dog. I'll always put 100% effort into schoolwork and homework. I'll not have a negative attitude towards school or homework. I'll complete and turn in my homework on time. Well, it goes on a little bit further here. It's just... The passage that Paul says, what Paul says is, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. You get a blessing from this. You get a blessing from obeying your parents. You get a blessing from 
doing what they ask you to do. So the first four verses of chapter 6, Paul's saying, in essence, do your parenting with a purpose. Train your children to obey. It will protect their lives, literally. Think about it. A young child learning to listen to the voice of his mother or father. Children do incredibly foolish things. It's a miracle that any child lives past the age of 10. I mean, it just, you know, jumping off tables. I remember jumping off a garage. Don't do this at home, folks. It was, why do, why do I do that? I don't know, because I could do it. To see if I was afraid to jump from that high. I don't know. But children do stupid things, foolish things. Parents warn them. Parents train their children, don't run when I say stop. It's for their good. Why? Uh, you think of a tragic story I heard of where a child ran out between cars and was hit by a car in spite of parents yelling, stop, don't do it. That's why. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right, it's right, but it also protects your life. It will also guard you for the rest of your life. Now, it's interesting also that the word here uh, for obey is different than the word uh, used in, in chapter 5, verse 22, wives submit. That word also could mean obey. And it's a different word meaning something different because here the word has to do with taking orders and actually in the next section as well. Do what you're told is what it's saying. Do what you're told to do. That's what the word obey is here. How do children learn to obey? Well, their parents teach them what the word of God says. The disobedient child is ever at risk. And it's not the job of the church to do this. The church is your assistant. It's your job at home to teach your children to obey. And what's your authority for that? Well, God says that that's the job of the parents. He stands behind you. He's given you directions. I was reading in Proverbs this week, train up a child in the way he shall go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. You plant seeds in the lives of a young child, and that child, those seeds will blossom and grow. And there may be a season when the child goes far away, but you've planted the seed. And God is faithful in all things, and God will hold on to his child. I remember hearing of a man at a corporate board meeting, an adult, blowing up and just letting loose with a loud, long tantrum. And when he finished, another board member looked across the table at him and said, Now, I wonder why your parents didn't manage that when you were five. You see, it's your job as parents to prepare your children to leave your home and to live on their own. And you train a child on the boundaries of what makes a life successful and what makes it possible for you to get along well with other people. And so that's your job as parents, to train your children. Verse 4, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Teach your children with gentle firmness. Now, this word fathers could also mean parents. It's focused, it seems, on fathers, and that's the traditional translation, but it could also be parents do not provoke your children. I think one of the ways that parents provoke their children is by expecting more of them than they are able to accomplish at a certain age. Uh, you do age-appropriate discipline, you do, have age-appropriate expectations, 
And so you're always stretching your child. They're growing and maturing and increasing in their capabilities. But you don't expect a five-year-old to do what a 10-year-old can do. You're provoking your child. You're frustrating them on the inside. They're not able to do all of those things. But you can increase responsibility slowly and incrementally as they grow older. Um, don't provoke your children. Don't provoke them. Uh, now, parents, how you respond to your child is also important. Um, you treat them and you train them in such a way that you're not frustrating them but you're encouraging them along the way. You hold them accountable. But also you set an example. If you walk around and leave a mess behind you, what do you expect your child to do? You know, if you're always impatient, if you're always interrupting other people when they're talking, what do you expect your child to do? They're going to be just like you. They're going to do just what you have done. It's all they know. They've watched you and they've learned from you. So parents, be careful. Let your children see you reading your Bible, and they'll want to read it. Let them see it. Uh, I knew a man once who was trying to get his children to read the Bible, but his methodology was so counterproductive. He threatened them with so many things. Uh, he, he called them names for not doing it, and, and he was degrading them. And the children, you could see the tears they were so utterly frustrated. I told them, if you keep up doing what you're doing, you're teaching your children to hate reading the Bible because they will always associate that with the pain of the way that you're teaching them now, the way you're treating them. Treat them lovingly and kindly. Lead them along the way. Let them see you read your Bible. If you want them to learn verses, learn them with them. It's not just their job. It's for you as well. Let them see you pray and they'll want to pray. Let your children see you do what you want them to do. It's the best way. You can expect these things, and that's okay, but you ha having your expectations, they need to be reasonable. Now, Paul then turns to the, another area in which, another arena in which we all work. In which we all work, we all live, and that is our work setting. Starting with verse 5 and through verse 9, he turns his attention to the work world that you all, all of us are part of at one time or another. And he starts out, he says, slaves, obey your earthly masters. And some of you are saying right now, yeah, well, you've met my boss evidently, haven't you? Uh, Paul is writing not to endorse, the, uh, endorse slavery, but to say that um, in, in a very real world, in the very real way that he lived in his world, Slavery was a part of it. In fact, the majority of the people in the world in which Paul was moving at that time were slaves. There was always this fear in the Roman Empire that the slaves would sometime rise up, and they did on several occasions, because there were so many of them. And so Paul is not condoning slavery, but he's talking about a realistic situation. What does a person who becomes a believer in Christ, but who is a slave, who does not have personal freedom, what does he do? Paul says, I'm going to tell you what you do. I'm going to tell you how you address your work setting. And this, of course, translates into our day in the work setting in which you go. The rules apply the same. It's the same word to every one of us as we work. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Same word, obey. Listen to what you're told. Do what you're told. The application is at a work setting. Your boss says, I'd like you to do this. Do it. 
And he says, be careful of the way you do it. You do it as you would Christ. If Jesus stood beside you and said, I would like you to do this, what would you do? You would do it. And he says, that's how you go to work. You go to work with the expectation that you're going to do what your boss says. That's why you're there. And he says it even more carefully. He says, not by way of eye service as men pleasers. That's such a descriptive phrase. Eye service as men pleasers. In other words, is the boss watching? You know, you say to your coworker, is the boss behind me? Can he see me now? And if you're thinking that, then you're doing eye service. You're doing what is pleasing to the boss because he's watching you. It's really what you do when he's not there that makes a difference. That's what makes the difference. Are you doing it to Christ, for Christ, or are you doing it just because someone's watching you and you might get in trouble if you don't do it? Uh, and I, I know of uh, a number of different work settings that some of you are in. Uh, some of you, your bosses go to extreme measures to make sure that their employees are working. Uh, I know that the city, for instance, uses all kinds of expensive technology to follow their employees around, knowing where they are, and to make sure that no one can sign in or out another employee. I remember when I worked at a foundry that that was always one of the things. Someone would say, hey, sign me out. I'm going home. I can't do that. Punch me out. I can't do that. And, you know, of course, you lose friends that way, but you have to do what you have to do. And you can't, you can't dishonor God because your friend asked you to do it, and it's dishonoring to your boss. If he's paying you to work those hours, those 15 minutes, you should work those 15 minutes. That's the difference being a Christian makes. And by the way, you know, a strange thing that happens when you do this is you become a model employee. <laughs> you know, the, the thing that makes the difference in the work world is do you show up for work on time every time you're supposed to be there? If you do that, you will be in the top uh, ranking of employees around you because you just show up to do your job. It makes you outstanding just because you're there. So you, you want to be an excellent employee, go to work. Don't think of all kinds of excuses as to why you can't work or why you might be sick or whatever it might be. Go to work. Um, then the instruction Paul turns around to, um, to the masters as well, verse 9. Masters do the same to your employees or to your slaves in this case directly. Do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Repeatedly throughout scripture, we find that there is an accountability <clears throat> that everyone has to God. Everyone will give an accountability to God. And if you are an employer, you will give an accountability as to how you treat your employees. That is the command of God to you. I still remember vividly in Bible school I worked in a foundry and I, I did all kinds of odd jobs. I ran various kinds of machinery and when there wasn't any specific job to do they'd say go clean in this area or that area and I'd go clean. And the foundry's a filthy place. I mean it's just dust and dirt everywhere. And, and I remember that in the middle of the, the working floor there was an office just like a little cement block room with dirty windows. You could never see in through the windows because there was always such crud on them. Uh, but I went in there and I was cleaning up in there and the telephone rang and the door flew open and in comes a guy and I remember the supervisor's name. He was a supervisor. I remember his name because his name was Wayne. And he picked up the phone and he was a gruff guy. I mean, he was rough spoken and I could tell within a few seconds, I was just sweeping away pretending I'm not listening here, and, uh, and, and I could tell in a few seconds that someone had dialed the wrong number. And I could not believe this man, 
laid into this person. I don't know who it was. I don't know if it was a man or woman. I don't know where they were in the, in the whole uh, complex. But <clears throat> he laid into her, that person. I'm assuming he's a woman. I don't know that. But with profanity and swearing at them and just, you know, going on and on. And all the person did was dial the wrong number. That's all they did. I always think about that when this passage, when I come to this passage. Masters, do the same for your servants. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is their master is also your master. Um, God does not have favorites. Whether you are the employer or employee, you will give account for your treatment of others. Uh, the thing I had in here in this treasure chest here was a contractor agreement. I agree to do this. My employer agrees to do that. We work together on this. We are all together under the authority of our master in heaven. Now, Paul wants to turn our attention then to close things up, to explain how this really works in the real world. Being a believer is being in a war zone, living in a war zone constantly. Not just sometimes, not just when you go to church, but everywhere at all times. You are under spiritual attack. That's Paul's message to us. So we turn now to verse 10 in chapter 6. This was already read for us. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, not in your might. doesn't matter how strong you are. Your strength is in him. It's his might. You be strong in the Lord and in his might. And you be strong. And over and over again in Scripture, <clears throat> there are the commands to be strong. Be strong. God says repeatedly to various people in various settings. You cannot avoid this spiritual battle. Paul reminds us in chapter 2 that you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You were once at war assisting Satan. You were once on his team. Because that's why you never were aware of a spiritual war to begin with. You were on his side. He was not fighting you. He was, you were going along with the plan. You did whatever he directed you to do. That's what Paul says. You were following the prince of the power of the air. That's how you lived. So some of you are shocked when you came to Christ and all of a sudden it got hard. There was opposition. You didn't know what this opposition was like before. You never experienced it because you had never been in the spiritual battle. You would always, had always been on Satan's side and there was no conflict. But now you come to Christ, and when you come to Christ, you suddenly find that there's a battle going on. There's a war going on. Satan wants you to quit in defeat. He wants you to fail. He wants you to be, bring disgrace upon, him, upon Christ and on his name. He wants everything in your life to utterly frustrate you. And it would bring him no greater joy than to crush you. Because you have now become his enemy by taking up with the master, the true master of the universe. One of the masterful books of John Bunyan, besides Pilgrim Prog Pilgrim's Progress, he wrote another book called The Holy War. I love that book. It's about a city called Mansoul. And in the city called Mansoul, there's a mayor, there's a conscience, uh, there's, there's uh, someone who's a conscience, and, and there's all these 
characters that are there. And it's the, it's the story of how this city was built by this great prince. And it, the city was greatly loved. But then the city was deceived and fell under the power of Satan. And all the attacks that Satan used to get him to fall, get the city to fall. And he talks about the eye gate, the ear gate, the different ways that, that there are inroads made into the heart of Mansoul. It's an excellent story if you want to see a, kind of a, a, a literary portrayal of the spiritual battle that we're in. But you are at war with Satan once you become Jesus Christ. And make no mistake about it. He wants to defeat you. He wants to crush you. He wants you to fail. So Paul says in that context, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So many verses talk about being strong. I just picked a few of them. In Deuteronomy 31, Moses said, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And in Proverbs, we read, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. And to Joshua, multiple times in the beginning of the book of Joshua, and you wonder, why, why did it have to be said so many times? Because Joshua was a general who served under Moses. And now when Moses died, over and over again in that first chapter of Joshua, God says to him, be strong, be strong. He says, have, I, have not I commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Be strong. Be courageous. You are in a battle. It will take battle. It will cost you something to get what I have for you. But be strong. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Don't trust in your own cleverness. You'll always come up short. You'll always fail. There are three great forces at work against you in day-to-day -day living. It's summed up in various places in Scripture, the devil, the world, and your own flesh. And we're told two of them, the world and the flesh, we're to flee from them. We are to run from them. We are not to, to stand and fight with them. Just go away from it. Don't stand there and have the battle. But we are told to fight the devil. We are told to put on the armor of God that you might be able to stand. To fight the devil. Your enemy is clever. He's determined. He's powerful. And no servant of God escapes the attacks of Satan. No servant of God. This battle, uh, in this battle, physical muscle is absolutely worthless. It doesn't matter. Because the battle is, focuses on your mind and on your soul. Now Paul says something here. He said, be, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. <clears throat> for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And here's who the enemy is. We wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And there's that phrase, this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's who we're fighting against. You can't see it, but they're all around you. I walked past the door in Pastor Ralph's class this morning. He's talking about the invisible war. And they were talking about this passage. The battle is there, all around you. And we're in the middle of it all the time. 
And there are these forces against us, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There are places we discover who these demonic powers are a little bit. For instance, we discover that there is in, uh, I think it's Daniel, where it says that it talks about the prince of Persia. And then we discover that there are other demonic forces overseeing countries and peoples. And they are trying to misguide them, trying to lead them in another direction, trying to take them away from the possibility of following God. There are these forces, and it's an organized army that Satan has. These are the, uh, these are the enemies that, that are the powers that are against us, and their goal is utterly to destroy mankind. Again, I'm thinking of John Milton's uh, masterful poem, Paradise Lost, and how he describes the, the motivations of Satan and the things that moved him to come to earth when he had been thrown from heaven and cast down outside of heaven's uh, presence, the presence of God, and he discovered, he heard that there was a place that God had invested his love, and he went to attack that place, the earth. He went to go there specifically to cause this people that God had made to fall. It is his goal, it is his purpose, and it remains so to this day. These are the demonic powers that you cannot see that are at work all around you. But be strong. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And now Paul begins to describe his armor. He said already put on the whole armor of God. And therefore take up the whole armor of God, verse 13, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. Someone was observing that when Paul wrote this, he was in prison. He was guarded by Roman soldiers. So he's writing this letter, and he looks up, and there's a Roman soldier standing there in his Roman uh, armor. Now, remember that this is, uh, usually when we talk about armor, we think of, my mind goes right away to the Middle Ages, to a medieval knight covered in head to toe in armor. That's not the case. That's not the kind of armor that he's talking about here. And so he talks about putting on the armor of God, putting on the whole armor. And he begins to describe what he's looking at on this soldier, and he begins to apply it to a spiritual war. One of the other passages that always comes to mind, a literary passage when I think about spiritual warfare, is in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, there is a whole section of several pages where Pilgrim, Christian, is attacked by Apollyon, Satan, and how he beats on him, and how Satan ultimately flees from him. But Christian is almost defeated. He's lying on the ground, he's bleeding, and he's almost defeated, except by the Word of God standing strong. Now, you're probably wondering, okay, what are you going to use? I've used all kinds of things to illustrate various parts of this. This is a fun one. I love this one. I borrowed this. When you think of armor, don't stand too close. When you think of armor, I think of a sword, and we're going to get to that in a moment. What is the illustration here of the spiritual war? Well, a sword uh, is the illustration of that. Uh, this, unfortunately, is not what a Roman sword looked like. A Roman sword was about half that length. It was for up-close stabbing. 
that long distance. But it is the picture that I want us to take in our mind of warfare. You are in a spiritual war, and you need to put on the armor of God. You need it because your enemy wants to defeat you. The goal of the armor of God is so that you can stand, so that you may stand. I'm, I'm thinking about Acts chapter 7. You remember there in, in Acts 7 there was this family, the sons of Sceva, the seven sons of a guy named Sceva. We, know, we don't know a whole lot about them except that they took up, they found a profitable, profitable business in casting out demons. And it describes one scene in which they went into a place and they said, we cast you out in the name of Jesus Christ. And the demon said to them, okay, we know who Paul is and we know who Jesus is, but we don't know who you are. And then it says, they beat these guys up, these demons beat these guys up, the demonically controlled person beat these guys up, and they ran from the house naked and bleeding. They didn't have on any armor. They couldn't stand against the attacks of the devil. And they ran from the house naked and bleeding. They were totally ill-equipped. Without the armor of God, you will be defeated. It is not optional. It is not something that, that you should do if you feel like it, if you want to feel tough someday. Without it, you will be defeated. Armor covers vulnerable, vulnerable areas of your body. It makes it possible to withstand attack. And so armor is a good picture. Armor strengthens weakness. Armor also prevents injury. Well, the first thing that Paul says to do is to put on the belt of truth. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness are possibly Paul was thinking about a passage from Isaiah where God is speaking about the people of Israel and how they need to be delivered and how he intends to do it. And he knows that he's going to do it. No one else can deliver them. Chapter 59 of Isaiah, verse 15, right in the middle part of the verse. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing. And he's talking about God putting on his own armor in order to take on and bring salvation for the people of Israel. And God does exactly that. The belt of truth is not just a decoration to hold up your skirt if you're a Roman soldier. Um, now, back up to the belt there. Jumped ahead a little bit here. There we got it. The belt of truth. It was a part of the armor. And it was a protection. Truth protects vital organs, the belt protected vital organ, and truth protects you. Your only source of truth is the Word of God. If you don't know the Word of God, you don't know what truth is. You might think good things, you might think nice thoughts, but truth is found in the Word of God. You need to know the truth, and the truth is found in the Word of God. Now the second thing that he talks about then is the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. Put that on as well. The breastplate of righteousness is doing what is right according to God. That's what righteousness is. 
All righteousness is right doing in the eyes of God. It's what God says is right, not what other people say is right. It's what God says is right. When you do what is right according to God, godly living protects the heart, just as the breastplate of righteousness protects the heart of the soldier. It protects your heart from attack. And of course, we're not talking about the physical organ, the blood pump in your body. We're talking about the center of who you are. Your heart is protected by righteous living. That's why you watch someone who, who falls into pornography or into other kinds of sin, and, and their heart is damaged because they're not living rightly before God. And their heart is damaged because it affects who they are on the inside. And so the breastplate of righteousness needs to be put on. And then he says also to um, <clears throat> verse 15, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And the Roman soldier had sandals on, but they were special sandals with very thick soles, and they had hobnails in the bottom so that they could walk on rough terrain. Eventually these became military boots, but this was the armor of the military soldier in the Roman army. Um, the gospel of the peace of God, it passes all understanding. Shoes allow you to go in rough places. They, the gospel is for taking to other places, so you need shoes to take it there. Verse 16, he says, take on, the in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, the shield of faith. And the shield of faith is like the size of a small door. The Roman armor had the large shield. It was heavy, and there are different descriptions of how it was made. Some said it had iron backings on it. Some had said it was, had wooden backing covered with leather. And in the case of a battle, they would soak it in water so that when the enemy shot flaming arrows at them, the arrows would go out. And the shield was a defensive mechanism. They could put it up and stop the attacks with it. Faith is the shield of faith. It stops the flaming dark, uh, darts of the evil one. Over and over again, as you read the accounts of Jesus, he talks, about, talks to the disciple about their little faith. He scolded them for that. Little teeny faith. He says, if you, if you have faith just the size of a mustard seed, you, you can move a mountain. You can say to that mountain, go from here to there. And the implication is, well, how big was their faith if it wasn't even that big? And so he said, trust in Jesus. Trust in him. Faith is knowing what you believe. Too many Christians have a faith that they don't understand. You profess it. You say, well, I believe. And if someone says, well, what do you believe? Well, I don't know. Do I have to know that? Yeah, you do. It is your faith and understanding what you have in Jesus that lets you stand and quench the darts that are thrown at you. And verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. The helmet of salvation protects the mind. The helmet goes on the head and protects the mind. It gives you the certainty of God's promises. You, it, is, it is a mental battle. The whole spiritual war takes place in the mind. It's where you are attacked. It's where the, the enemy throws his, his forces, and it guards you from fear. Jesus said to, in John 10, he said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. That's the helmet of salvation. You are secure. You are absolutely safe. No one can take you out of the hand of Jesus. You are safe. And he says, you're in my hand, and I'm in the Father's hand. No one can take you out of my hand. That's solid. 
That's rock solid. That's the helmet of salvation. That's what you have when you go from place to place to place. The worst thing that could happen to you in this world is that you die. But what happens? You go right to heaven. So if the worst thing is really the best thing, what is there to fear? God has you. Jesus has you in his hand. The helmet of salvation is the security that you have from attack in the mind. Satan plays mind games, planting lies, thoughts, doubts, using the words of others to cause insecurity. Your security is found in Jesus. It is the armor of God. And then lastly, of course, the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit. Ah. The sword of the Spirit is an aggressive weapon. Everything else is for defense. Jesus used the sword of the Spirit when Satan came to him in the wilderness and quoted scripture to him, actually misquoted scripture to him. And Jesus took the sword of the Spirit and answered with the right application of the Word of God. And it said, ultimately, Satan left him alone. Satan left him alone. We're told to resist the devil and he'll flee from you. You don't resist him by being a tough guy. You resist him by using the Word of God. If you don't know the Word of God, you can't resist the devil. You can ham and haw and you can say, well, I once learned a verse like this, or I heard somebody say something like that, and Satan says, oh, really? I want you to watch this short clip. I think we have it here, right? Some of you say, I can't memorize. Baloney. You can. Raina is, what, three years old? And she's learning the Word of God. You don't memorize because you won't memorize because you don't give it the time and you don't give it the effort and you don't review it. And that's why you don't memorize. That's why your sword is dull. That's why you're under attack and you don't know what to say. You don't know how to deal with it. Friends, you can memorize the Word of God. You can do it. And it's not an optional thing. It's a part of your armor. It's the only thing that you have to stand and to aggressively chase off the attacks of the devil. Now, all of this is linked together at the end. Paul brings it all together. He says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. 
prayer and supplication. Prayer is something for you. Supplication is something for someone else. And I think about the Roman armor again, and a picture I saw in researching this. They took those shields, and the Roman army was invincible in part because they moved together. They walked together. They maintained a pattern. And when they came under attack from arrows, they took those shields and they formed what they called the turtle. I don't have a picture of it here, but they, they covered their heads and they covered their sides. Everyone used their shield to cover all of them until the arrow stopped falling. Then they took out the, they stood up and they went on the attack again. Supplication, prayer, covering one another. Each man, it says that the shields hooked together and they locked together and they were impenetrable and so the attack couldn't succeed. Supplication is praying for one another. You pray for one another, it's like locking the shield together, and it protects you from the attacks of the enemy. That's why prayer is how Paul ends all of this. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul then says goodbye to some of his friends. Uh, he says, so you may know how I'm doing. I sent Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister of the Lord. He'll tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. He began the letter with grace to you peace from the loving God our Father, and he ends it in grace and peace. You and I stand in the grace of God. We're saved by the grace of God. We stand in him, in Jesus, and we are secure in him because he has provided all that we need. Now, one more thing about this armor. Don't think that you ever take the armor off. You know, we, we think, okay, I'm going to battle. I'm going to put the armor on. You never know when the attack is coming. So the armor always is on. You don't suit up in the morning. You stay suited up. You sleep in your armor. Because the enemy is always attacking you. He's not waiting for you to say, okay, this is the time. It must be time for the attack. You don't know when it's coming. And so you always have to have the elements of the armor ready for you. You want to do something today? We've been giving you since January of this year a weekly verse to memorize. Get that list out. The verses have been listed in the bulletin. The references are all there. Start learning it. If you have children, learn it with your children. Sharpen your sword. Get ready to go to battle. Now we're going to close. It's been an encouraging day. It's always encouraging to see the work of God and to hear testimony of God's work. Now, as we close with a song, I want to invite you to come and be prayed for. Maybe some of you are under attack now, and you need someone to pray with you as Paul instructed us to do. This is a good time. Someone will meet you down in front or in the back in the balcony. Let's all stand as we close.